This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from InterVarsity Press and CT Creative Studio. Never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. Jamar Tisby is a historian, a writer, a speaker, and the author of the book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity and Racism. He's also the president of The Witness, the Black Christian Collective. It hopefully doesn't come across as something of an insider conversation. This is going to be fun. All right. His voice sounds so good. Jamar's? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, everybody's does. I everybody's. forgot how good his speaking voice was. You know, actually, I was nervous about how you would sound on the podcast, but yeah. listening to the draft, it's it works. It's really good. What you mean? In person, you talk really fast. Okay. But it works on the podcast. Every, like, people have always said that I speak quickly. Even when I even when I like preach, my, my congregation is consistent and plain. You are talking so deliberately right now. I'm trying my best to slow down. <laughs> I'm trying to slow down. I can give up now. I keep going. Settle down. Not ever knowing. Won't let my history bury me. Cause I ain't doing this just for me. Me and Jamar, we've known each other for a long time. But it's also the case that we have similar but slightly different perspectives on how you bring about social change so i i was interested about jamar because of the nature of the disruption that he brings and how it interacts with how african-americans have engaged um culture and so within the african-american context there's what i would say the um and jamar doesn't really fall into the radical stream but more of the uh, the independent stream. We go and we build our own institutions where we have complete financial control and we set the terms of our engagement. And there's a long tradition of, of, of African-American self-reliance. What's the name of this podcast again? The Disruptors. The Disruptors. So what? What? Well, let's do something a little bit disruptive. Let me ask you a question. Okay, there. If you were going to start a podcast and there was an outlet that had not one, not two, not three, but six different podcasts in a suite. But that was black-led and Christian. Would you look to that outlet? Yes, I would look to that outlet. <laughs> the bottom line is where we as black people, particularly as black Christians, place our voices, communicates volumes beyond just what we're saying or writing. And so there are some people of color who will go down that line. They will they will be, in some sense, outside of institutions that they own themselves. But there's also a significant number of people of color, me being one of them, who work within majority white institutions. And that's just not on the conservative side. That's on the conservative and the progressive sides of kind of the, the church. The ways in which you can do those things with integrity or both those things with integrity was a conversation I was super interested in having. And I knew that he would push me on some things, and he did. But alongside that, and Jamar would agree with this part too, that there has to be collaboration. 
and that we and and not just collaboration strategically. We have there has to be some collaboration because of what the Bible said the church is. And so the church is a gathering of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So any solution to the problems that afflict us has to be cross-cultural. African-Americans often wonder how to balance those things. How do you balance collaboration versus building your own space? And both of those carry their own risk and their own cost. And he was someone who once highlighted more collaboration and now I would say he highlights more, not to the exclusion of highlights more building his own space. That's an interesting journey to go on. That is where I am right now is I want to be very careful about where I place my voice, not in terms of, is this outlet going to look good or this outlet going to look bad, but in how are we building our own tables? How are we creating environments and spaces where we as racially conscious people, particularly black Christians, have the freedom to say what we need to say the way we need to say it? And that's going to explain everything you need to know about Reformed African American Network, how we transition to the witness about my writing and all of that stuff. One of the things we were talking about in the lead up to the podcast is how our approaches, and I'm speaking about me and you, both, yes. both dovetail and are a little bit distinct. And I think they actually pick up on trends historically with how African-Americans engage in oh, yeah. issues of justice and reconciliation. That's, and that's what the people need to hear. I was talking to our producer, Richard, I guess you can say your name. Uh, <laughs> I was talking to our producer about the fact that there is, there is a strand in the African-American tradition that is... And, and, and separatist is not a negative word, but this says, forget it, we will build our own. And it focuses on kind of black infrastructure, black businesses, black-owned institutions. You better believe and it. And there is a reformist tradition within the African-American, particularly Christian tradition, that says, let's reform the institutions that we have, which I actually think is dis- different, distinct from the African African American accommodationist tradition, which is yes. let's just accommodate to the institutions and get what we can. But and we further complicate it when we look at different spheres, yes. right? So, so if we're looking at the ecclesiastical sphere, then you have a lot of reformist folks who are in black churches, yes. but want to reform political or social institutions. Whereas if you look at accommodationists, they can be found in all spheres and all sectors. Yes, and if you look at the separatists or or the radicals or the builders or whatever you want to call them um that also can fall into different spheres based based on you know what sector of society you're talking about so i attend a predominantly white secular public university for graduate school i'm not trying to start my own university but when it comes to church or a nonprofit a christian nonprofit then yes i see much space for um independent black-led institutions. So take this, you link this to what happens with the Reformed African-American Network and what you guys are up to now in The Witness. So we, when we first formed, it was uh, fall 2011, and I was at Reformed Theological Seminary, which is not only white, it's Southern Reformed Presbyterian-ish white. So it was, it was, it had a lot of racial baggage in terms of the context. And so what I had been trying to do for a long time, ever since I stumbled on this thing called Reformed Theology, um, 
is 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 find multi ethnic community really. You should have just but found also, some literature, but that's a different question. <laughs> I found I found some literature. I, I, said, no, I no, found some I said, contemporary I said, literature. Liturgy, liturgy, not literature. <laughs> liturgy. Okay. You know, you know, I got I got to I got to get my commercial that, in. But that, I'm sorry. I'm gonna let you live. <laughs> you tell your reform story. Go ahead. You yeah you can you can make your pitch. I'm okay. sure you will. You'll have okay. a whole podcast series to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so, so what we were trying to do with, we called it RAN for short, Reformed African American Network, was uh, bring together African Americans who believed this uh, Reformation tradition migrating from, you know, Western Europe in the 16th century onward. And we were out there. The problem was Reformed, in our experience, had been so deeply embedded in these white Christian institutions and thought patterns that there was hardly any space for us. Now, there was a kind of space for us, and almost everybody knows this if you've interacted with white Christians. There's a way to be black or a person of color in those spaces and not be disruptive, right? Um, there's a way to, like you say, accommodationist. There's a way to talk, even talk about race, um, which is, you know, sort of this uh, what I would term racial reconciliation. That's a whole other discussion. But it's basically saying, you know, we will be in your spaces, but we won't move too quickly or try to change too much. We'll essentially adopt whatever mindset or culture or theology is already there. And then you can exist just fine. What we found um, was a changing cultural landscape that forced some questions that had already been there but it forced them to the surface. So August 2014, Mike Brown is killed by Darren Wilson, yet another unarmed black teenager killed by a white officer. Whatever you think about that particular incident in August of 2014, it sparked off a whole conversation, a long-standing conversation about police brutality in black communities, Black Lives Matter. Can I, then can you I, have... Go ahead. Can I interrupt you there? And I think it's... I'm just going to highlight that point because... What really frustrates me, especially when we, when we get to this part of the narrative, we talk about policing, and we use examples. And I know I can see the comments lining up now. They want us to argue the details of this event or that event. And what I want to say, just for my own emotional well-being, is that the African-American response, or at least my response to these issues, are rooted in a million other personal traumas that we've experienced of which this particular example serves as a catalyst for a discussion. And so regardless of whether or not like one incident, whatever you interpret one incident or the other, this is actually not talking about Mike Brown in particular. It's saying that what, what I want to make sure gets heard is the narrative that emerges across time as it relates to African-American experience of police violence. And that's at the center of what you're saying right now. So just stay out of our comments, but God bless you. <laughs> but see, even the fact that I have to say that, like on on my podcast, I don't have to say that, right? Because I know my audience and, and you're trying to reach a different audience, which is fine. Um, but there comes a point, which again ties into the transition that we're talking about, when you're spending so much energy explaining and notating and footnoting about stuff that in in black in conversations with other black people is 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 it's just assumed right there's an understanding there then 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 we start to question okay where is my time and energy best spent so so you know we're in this 2014 to about 2016 period we are seeing we, we are seeing 
incident after incident of racism, um, whether it's more cell phone videos with unarmed black people getting killed, um, whether it is the Emmanuel Nine, whether it is Charlottesville, whether it is the presidential election cycle, right? Not even up to November 2016. Uh, 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 Trump announced his candidacy in June 2015. So for more than a year, we're, we're dealing with all of this leading up to the election. And it's in the midst of that that we are getting just trolled and attacked intensely by white Christians. Not all. There's this certain segment that is like hyper-reformed, hyper-fundamentalist kind of uh, dude bros, sometimes called. And they just came after us. They even hacked our podcast. We don't know who it was, but somebody hacked our podcast uh, uh, past the mic to the point where it iTunes took it down and we couldn't restore the feed so that we had to start all the way over with our episodes, with our reviews, all of that stuff. So it was in the midst of this conver- this, this uh, 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 season that we as an organization and as, as a team were like, you know, who are we really here to serve? And are we able to do it within this paradigm of Reformed African American Network? And over time, that's how we came to uh, transition to the Witness, a Black Christian Collective. Now, do you think that um, initially the goal of the Witness was to, I'm sorry, the Black, the Reformed African American Network was to disrupt kind of the status quo as it, as it relates to race? And do you have a different set of race and kind of in evangelical settings? And do you have a different set of agendas and priorities now? Or do you feel like it's more of a name change than a focus change? Um, I think it's both. And I think it's evolving. So uh, w- when we changed the name in October of 2017, we did not know what the witness would become. What Rand was trying to do was form community within Reformed Christian circles and also say, hey, we can talk about race, too. Like, this is not an off-brand subject for Christians. Um, What we're doing with The Witness, I think, is is much more pointed. I think it's much uh, more um, direct in the sense of we are Black-focused. We've always been Black-focused, but we changed focus from African American, which is uh, you know a really U.S. kind of phenomenon, to Black to talk to the entire diaspora, right? So we have um, we're trying to cultivate voices from different countries uh, that are African descended, and then uh, as well, what we, we what we mainly set out to do was not give as much energy to the people saying we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. We're just going to do it. So you still think that you're attempting to unsettle the status quo, but you're less responsive to it in the way that you go about your, your days and weeks and months. Is that fair? Yeah. And I'd say we're, we're much, much, much less focused on the reformed aspect. It's a black Christian aspect. So the, the umbrella is a lot wider in that sense. I mean, I know whenever we have organizations, they inevitably bear some of the stamp of its founder. Yes. And so how would you would say, what's the relationship between your work as a historian in what you're trying to do as a writer and the reformed, I'm sorry, the, the witness, do you think that those things dovetail? Are they distinct? And how would you say your own personal ministry has changed over the last three to five years? I mean, studying the history of race in America in general and race in the church in particular will make you insistent about change. So it dovetails in the sense that 
as I'm doing my coursework in this PhD program, literally reading hundreds of books about U.S. history, a lot of them not focused specifically on race, but that's always part of the story. A lot of them not focused specifically on Christianity, but to the extent that they mention church, the, the, the white church is usually on the wrong side of justice. I am getting upset. I'm getting angry. I'm getting impatient because we have this vague sense that like racism is or has been a problem. But when you start to know names and dates and places and choices that people made, it is absolutely enraging in a righteous anger kind of way. I remember when I was a kid and I, I was watching, I mean, this so like I've been racially conscious for, I mean, I watched, I, when I watched Eyes on the Prize in middle school. And I, they 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 showed the video of Emmett Till's like the scenes for Emmett Till's funeral. I remember as a kid in middle school thinking, "Where do I live, and what have they done to us?" I remember I having this sense of both fear and anger. And right. obviously, there's we could talk about other moments as we kind of, these things return to us. But in adulthood. Was there a book or a moment? I know you talked about the era, like as it relates to the witness. But was there something that you read that had a strong impact on you? Yeah, it's a confluence of things, right? So I live in uh, the 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 Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side, and so I live in the area where so much of this racist history happened. Right, it's all over the place, but the geography affected me because literally my commute is through cotton fields. And so that strikes you some type of way as a black person in America, no matter how much history you do or don't know. More recently, it was reading David Garrow's Bearing the Cross, which is a biography of MLK, and seeing what Martin Luther King went through as the most prominent figurehead of the civil rights movement for 13 years, 55 Montgomery bus boycott to 68 his assassination, uh, that Early on, I mean, a month into the Montgomery bus boycott, he's getting death threats. And he endured that, you know, for over a decade just to give voting rights, just to desegregate, just to promote the beloved community. And that got me. That really got me. And so you talked about anger. And one of the things that is tricky as it relates to African-Americans who are engaging Injustice. I think. I, I think it was. It's the, it's the James Baldwin's quote: "To be, and this is his language from then, to be a Negro in America and to be slightly aware is to be in a state of almost constant rage." Yep. And so, actually, I have a chapter in my book on black anger and black rage, and and what you do about it, and how you think through it and process it as Christian, so that we're not consumed by it. But I would like to hear you reflect on how you deal with the anger that comes from reading American history and how you find space for hope. Uh, I share the anger. <laughs> well, I'm not I saying, wrote... <laughs> I'm, sorry, I wasn't saying that you don't share. I'm saying like beyond just, you know, articulating the anger, like what do you, how do you deal with the whole, what this, what this history does to you emotionally? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Sharing it is cathartic. So writing a book about it so that other people see what I see and are angry at it too, which has been a response to the color of compromise, a response I'm pleased about. Because if you can't, if you look in the face of anti-black racism throughout U.S. history and you're not mad 
then you can't be part of the solution. You can't because you don't you, you don't empathize. You don't have the compassion that is necessary for helpful interaction on these issues. Um, so to me, helping other people know and see what I see tells me I'm not alone in this thing. And that's the biggest thing that's that's helped me sort of maintain hope is that um, as we have uh, intentionally moved away from toxic spaces, which are really sort of white-centered, white supremacist spaces, um, we've lost a lot. We've lost a lot of platform. We've lost a lot of money, which is another thing we need to talk about in terms of race. Um, but what what I gained was a small but strong community of like-minded people who span the racial spectrum, but you don't have to explain your identity. You know, you don't have to explain your existence or your anger and then you can vent and you can support one another and you can laugh together. And that's what's getting me through. One of the um, things that I'm very careful of when I think about um, something like this is I have two tendencies that I think that are that are happening at the same time. So maybe if I name them and allow me to to do it and not do it. One is you don't want to rush too far, too quickly past the actual anger. You don't want to say you don't want you don't want to get to the resurrection too quickly without Good Friday and then Holy Saturday where we kind of sit with the weight of what you just said. But I would like to ask you is as you as a historian, is there something within the the Christian narrative as we kind of come to grips with it that does more than make us angry, but that also gives us hope? So what I'm asking you is is your historical work simply to say, here's this smoldering ruin, let us all be mad about it and not do it again, or let's begin to change society so that this doesn't continue, or do you see in your historical work some space for hope personally? Yeah, I see them as very integrated. I see anger, righteous anger, is creative. It's a creative force. Um, What you want to do is knock down oppressive systems and structures and ideas but obviously, if it's righteous, there's going to be a rebuilding and a restructuring and a creativity that goes along with that. So in the act of sharing this history, whether through teaching or writing or speaking on a podcast, um, it is simultaneously an act of deconstruction and reconstruction. Um, now, we can focus and put emphasis on one or the other, uh, depending on who it is. So when you say, you know, what is my work? Depends on the audience. If I'm talking to a predominantly white evangelical audience who in their institutions and structures probably haven't explored this in much depth, oh, there's got to be a lot of deconstruction going on, which is going to sound like a lot of here's the bad stuff that happened, which is a an intentional decision to deconstruct the sort of triumphalist American and Christian narrative that many people have inherited. Now, if you demonstrate through further study, through humility and contrition or whatever it might be that you want to take that further, oh, we got constructive stuff for you, right? That's the witness. This is where we get along. So I talk about the glory, the glory version of the American story in which kind of the overcoming of racism in America is seen as a manifestation of America's innate goodness. It's a, it's a part of a narrative. 
And so in that in the context of this glory narrative, slavery kind of wasn't as bad as we say it was, and look how far we've come. And in that in that narrative, African Americans can only play a bit role. First is this this deconstructive narrative that you talked about. And and I think about this, and I think about forgive me for sliding into my actual area, which is Paul. When Paul comes to the church in Galatians, he's trying to get them to not follow this false gospel. Paul says to them, have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? Mm-hmm. And I wonder what it's like for you emotionally. I know you said that you're used to dealing with it, but I know it's got to be somewhat disorienting to be seen as dangerous simply for articulating what is uncontroversial in an African-American context in the public square where there's a lot of people who are listening to it. And so what is it like for you? What's the cost for you spiritually, emotionally to be seen as dangerous or disruptive? I mean, there, there, there was a season, a long season, a couple of years where I couldn't do ministry. Mind you, I've been to seminary. I've got my MDiv. I always thought I would be in the pulpit on a regular basis, etc. But I had been so hurt by white Christians um, who treated me as an enemy, you know, and the specifics. Now they're saying, oh, it's critical theory, critical race theory, liberation, um, Marxist, communist, all those labels. Right. And then and then um, being personally attacked, you know, basically brought to the elders because of a Facebook post that was not in favor of Trump, um, uh, having folks to to flood my inbox in a concerted effort at agitation, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And this is from the body. This is from fellow believers. So there was a time when I had experienced so much sort of church hurt that I couldn't actually use my gifts in the church. And only I would say in the past six months or so, as we record this, have I been able to start to get back into that. So that was a real cost. But I hope that over time and reflection, white Christians will actually see how shameful it is that Christian brothers and sisters who believe virtually the same things in most theological areas feel so othered, feel so marginalized and attacked that they have to go somewhere else, right? Like, I'm not somebody who was already in the midst of this all-black environment, crossed over and said, nah, this not for me. I was in this, this sort of mixed race or predominantly white environment and said, okay, how can we make this work? And the more I try to bring my own history, my own culture, my own experience into that mix, the further I got pushed out. And I think that should be to the shame of you know, these predominantly white organizations and institutions. And if they ever get to the point where they see that, like, man, somebody like Jamar should have been right here with us or we should have been with him. And 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 that's a problem. I think then you can start to make progress. One of the things that I that I've that I've seen is that even for African Americans who come into majority white spaces and then they return or reintegrate into majority black spaces that sojourn has changed them. Oh, yeah. And so what has it been like returning to an African-American context? What has that experience been like for you? It's been great. It's been great. Um, I've always had to, you know, we just have, as as black folks, this very unhelpful idea of authentic blackness, right? 
And so I remember in college, because of the way I speak, I remember in college I did a um, a summer internship in the inner city of Chicago, at, uh, working with a youth day camp there. And I re- distinctly remember I was sitting at a park, like watching my group play at the playground. And this one little girl comes up. She wasn't part of our group. She was just out there. And she just starts chatting with me, like, who are you? You know, what's this group? What do you like? All those kinds of things. And then she, all of a sudden she stops and she just kind of cocks her head to the side. And she she looks at me funny. And then she says, you talk like they do. I'm like, who is they? And she said, white people. I was like, oh, okay. Um, then when I came to be a teacher in the Delta, it was the same thing, right? Now you have this uh, college-educated black man who speaks a certain way, uh, not from the South, et cetera. And you sort of have to assert your, not your blackness. What I found is what you have to do, what I had to do was um, make clear my solidarity and get rid of any sort of idea of condescension, right? Like like the, even a subtle thing of I'm better than you. So, so that's the difference between you know, using a parent's first name and calling them Mr. or Miss, right? Yes. Those are the kinds of things that that I've always had to do. So it's it's it's, not new. It's interesting because I came out of the Black Baptist tradition, and I'm talking about the Southern, when it comes to preaching, the Southern hooping tradition. Like my my granddad was a call-and-response Black pastor who was also in the gospel quartet who, you know, would break out in a song in the middle of his preaching. And I went into the ministry at 18 in the Black Baptist context, but I never hooped. And so it was really interesting you talked about that because I got, when I was growing up, they used to like, oh, you lecture. (laughs) Exactly. That That was was a a nice lesson. That was a nice teaching. (laughs) And, but one of the things, one of the things that I had to be comfortable with, you talk about like authentic blackness, is that I had to learn how to comfortably inhabit my own skin in black yep. spaces. Yep. And so I tell people when I come and I preach to them, and I, I think at the, literally at the beginning of the call and response conference that I did in 2018, I said I was preaching like this in a black context. This is, this is not normalization for me. This is just the way that God made me. And I think mm-hmm. the part of it is sometimes coming out of white spaces, the attempt to reestablish your credentials can feel very very pressing did you ever yeah. feel that to say like how do i show my people that i'm that i'm here did you feel any of that pressure i think i went through that largely when i was a, a teacher and trying to figure out well, why why are these kids responding better to the white teacher from connecticut than the black teacher who looks like them and it was because i was actually trying to artificially look and sound like what i thought they wanted to hear and that was just i mean it, kids can see through that immediately, right? So it took me probably about two years to start to begin to say, okay, I can be a window into, you know, my own brand of blackness. And it's not any less black than uh, what I feel other people want to see or hear from me. So then when it came to, you know, uh, 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 you know more intentionally moving toward black spaces, a lot of that work had already been done, but what I find what's troublesome is I don't have the same intuitive 
cultural cues as people. So I got to go and learn. I have to intentionally sort of sit down and study the history of the black church or um, listen in in a very attentive manner to black preaching and see, okay, what did they do there? How is that resonating? How is that different than what I was trained in in a white seminary, all that stuff? So what I have to do is go back and actually study these things that for people who have been embedded in predominantly black setting, it's just first nature, really. Notice that like some people who kind of go through the experience that you talked about are now trying to kind of reconstruct their theology that kind of that brings back in kind of the African-American tradition. And so they're kind of coming at it almost from an academic perspective. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Versus yeah. like an intuitive perspective. Yes. And and I think that the people, I mean, at least for me, I feel like it was a lot less traumatic because I just went back to what I was taught when I was a kid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. what was constructed. And so what I want to what I want to and this is once again I'm going to at least name it so that there's no misunderstanding. Whenever there's an African American who talks about becoming more and more racially conscious and you ask the theological question, part of it can be, well let's make sure his theology is on point while he talks about justice. That's not what I want to do right here, but what I do want to do is ask you how did you maintain or develop or grow your theological sense of self? As you're dealing with this increasing understanding of the church's complicity, how did you keep kind of your faith in Christ and what your core theological principles intact as you went through this process? Or how did they change if they did? Well, that was the foremost thing that stuck out to me is that there are still and have been such a thing called black Christians. And if you really think about that, that means there is something in the Christian message, something in the gospel that is true and transcendent in spite of all of the racism that folks have imported into a version of Christianity that you can hold on to. So as a matter of fact, I mean, my faith was bolstered in the sense that the Christianity I had received through churches and books and conferences and seminaries that was predominantly white wasn't the whole story. And so I was excited to go out and read J.D. Otis Roberts, read James Cone for the first time because he had been set up as this boogeyman that you couldn't touch, uh, to learn the history of uh, activists who are also Christians, um, whether whether that's Rosa Parks or Ida B. Wells or uh, uh, Phyllis Wheatley. I was thrilled to go back and say, oh, there is a there is a spiritual vernacular here that resonates with my experience that I've never really been exposed to uh, without some sort of critique, you know. Um, and it was it was it was invigorating for me. And uh, it, it goes back to the whole thing of you know is Christianity the white man's religion? Well, from a historical perspective, that's that's an extremely short view of history. Because so one of the interesting <laughs> things is we talk about decolonizing our, you know, bookshelves, decolonizing this and that and the other. But the claim that Christian this this is me homilizing, but the claim that Christianity is a white man's religion is a colonization of history. Mm-hmm. It is a white centered version of history. Because if you actually look at the at the church, so and, and sorry, here's here's the Anglican commercial. So you're either going to say to me, people say, well, how could you be Anglican when Anglicanism is white? I said, oh, so now we're going to talk about the church is America, right? But so if the church is in America, then the church is in America. 
So church history is a global phenomenon, then it's a global phenomenon, and the church isn't just kind of increasing in diversity as you move through time, but the church is born as a multinational, multi-ethnic reality. But now you can go on, sorry. Humbly yeah, over. I mean, that's what, we're, that's what we're discovering. Now, I will say that expressions of Christianity, in especially in their their ecclesiastical and institutional forms, oh, it's very white. <laughs> and that 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 critique or that label comes from a real place, right? So so to folks who might hear us talking, be like, yeah, you know, Christianity is multi ethnic and everything. Never forget <laughs> that that there are very white centered spaces that are so white centered that they're oppressive to anybody who comes in with any sort of different kind of experience or or outlook. Um, so it's a real problem that we have to deal with. But, you know, there are a lot of secular people out there or non-Christians out there who will say, oh, you know, the whole religion is like that. I'm like, nah, nah. That's a very <laughs> geographically narrow view and historically narrow view. So you wrote Color of Compromise in part to articulate kind of the the dark side of American history. And it, in part, is, is is oriented towards an audience that doesn't know these things. Is there any, like, desire to write, I don't know, the color of glory where you tell the story of the African-American church? I'll, I'll focus more on individuals or institutions in, in uh, future works that, that highlight um, black people, which is one of my, you know, sort of intentional moves. Uh, my first proposed dissertation topic was to study um, a black evangelical named Tom Skinner, who's I'm, who I'm still studying. But it was in the context of his interaction with white evangelicals. And I couldn't do that. Like that was going to that was going to be soul crushing to me, because what it basically boils down to is um, the racism he experienced from other from white evangelicals and i'm like I, I can't spend you know however long it takes me to write this thing after having just written the color of compromise about you know a similar topic that was going to that was going to shake me up in um emotional ways which is one of the things you know people need to realize is is like when we do this work whether as theologians or pastors or historians or 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 lay people and 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 as black people when we study race it is not simply an intellectual exercise, right? It's, it's a emotional. mind, body, spirit thing. All of you is in it. And 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 when, you know, Luther and Mary Holbert get lynched, um, that 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 strikes me, right? The the subtitle of my book is um African American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And it is kind of like trying to say, given all the stuff that we've experienced and seen in this country. Is there any way that we can still see this as something that is viable? And the undergirding thesis of, of the book and the examples that I put that I put up that I bring out in the chapters is that for African Americans, the process of biblical interpretation itself has been the means by which we gain hope. That's right. Yep. And so it is it is like you said, it is our Christian faith that allows us to not be in despair because I mean, if I was a secularist, I mean, I would, I mean, Tadahasi's Coates' nihilism is well earned, mm -hmm. right? Devoid of a transcendent God, then this, this is a tragedy. This is true. So what we tried to do, another way we tried to be disruptive was we had our first national conference and 
the title as well as the theme was Joy and Justice. And it was uh, in 2019, so it was um, continuing the 400-year journey of Black Joy and Justice from 1619 to 2019. And, and the whole idea was we often emphasize, and more so these days, which I think is a good development, we emphasize justice. We emphasize the fact that there has been and still is grave injustice along racial lines, and we point to and highlight the black pursuit of justice. But in the midst of that, there's also joy. And so we've been able, you know, to take things like Twitter and make black Twitter, right? When Vine was a thing, black people were all over that. We've got cultural icons from Denzel Washington to Ava DuVernay. We've got, you know, one black president. Um, you know, we've got family. We love, we have children. You can actually look at African-American history and see that after periods of intense oppression, part of the black spirit are these strong affirmations of black pride and black work that come as a response. So you talk about the Harlem Renaissance and the strong affirmation of black culture that comes out of the, you know, the, the, the treatment of African-Americans returning home from war. You have, um, you don't, you only say black Black is beautiful, or the strong, like I'm black and I'm proud by James Brown, comes in the context of the denial of black worth. So then you come around, at least when I was a kid, so this is like the 80s, early 90s, and the conscious movement in, in hip-hop, we were running around with those Africa medallions, and we were all named Malik. And it was once again coming out. I think, I think this, is, this is a response to, to Reagan in the 80s. You have, like, black is amazing. And then you, you come back again, and what's her name? She said, I'm rooting for everybody black. Who said that? Was that, was that Issa Rae? Yeah, Issa Rae. And what I'm saying is you're, you're, we're actually in the middle of, right now, another strong re-embrace of of black culture as a response to oppression. That's what I, I, I talk about it. It's, it's that confidence that actually has a strong influence on, on popular culture, kind of like black swagger. Mm-hmm. I actually do think is a, is a theological response to white supremacy. It is there. It is, it is the African-American way of saying, and I think that nobody's articulated it better than MLK. He talks about the sense of somebodyness in the new Negro. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we're actually right now in the middle of a new affirmation of that. And that's yes. the joy. That's the joy on the other side of of justice. And it, and it's also kind of this African-American tradition. Uh, and maybe it's not unique to us, but I know that we do it. Just laughing in the face of extreme trauma. Oh, yeah. So, we, I mean, I mean. The black people, at least on my timeline, were like leading the like World War Three jokes. Yep. 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 And it wasn't that we weren't taking war seriously. It was just like, given the darkness that we experience in, in America, you either weep or you find your way towards joy. So I'm glad that you guys had those two things together. That's right. That's right. And it's a joy and a, a black aesthetic that is not dependent on white approval, which is why it's so liberating and also why it's so threatening. See, you're gonna, yeah. you gonna go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Because because you know, saying Black Lives Matter actually doesn't need white approval. It's just a statement of fact. It's a statement of theological fact. You, you can you can break that down quite easily, right? But it's also threatening because it says to a white supremacist society, 
It's not white supremacy. It's racial equality and human equality, actually. And then we lose our power. <laughs> so what would, for you, success look like as you think about your life and career? Like, what, what would you say when the well done and that good and faithful servant at the end of your ministry, what would, what would success look like to you? And what would you say failure would look like? So, so part of success is uh, we just announced something called the Witness Foundation. And what we're trying to do is start an endowment uh, to financially support black Christian ministries in perpetuity. And so we're trying to raise a million dollars just as the seed of an endowment to do that and offer financial grants to uh, black Christian ministries. We're, we're fleshing that out now, but we're already taking donations. Many people have already signed on to it. So success is sort of generational impact, right? So um, if you look at the history of these things, then, uh, you know, organizations like The Witness, there have been very similar organizations, but they come and go, you know, six years, eight years at the most. We might be the longest, you know, 21st century version of it uh, to, to be going. So what's going to last? What's going to make an impact? What's going to disrupt the historical cycles of the racial wealth gap as it affects Christians, all those things. So so one of those things is a generational impact. Failure would look like, um, for me personally, it would be like, well, this racial justice fight is a good fight, but it's inconvenient. It's easier to get a paycheck. It's easier to go along with the flow and and be you know one of these acceptable black people in these white christian spaces and i think that would be horrible just lukewarm kind of way to live christianity jamar i have a question real quick as, as far as the failure is that a, a, a real possibility in your mind is that something that the possibility of i think i think i think i get tired and that's natural. That's why the Lord builds in a Sabbath every week and a Sabbath eternity, if you will. Um, so if I don't have a healthy rhythm of work and rest, then I think the threat is bitterness that could either lead me away from the faith or a fatigue that could say, well, whatever, it's not that bad. I can deal with it. It's really interesting that we share the same fear. I actually have a, we're both taking our own chances. But I think this idea that that I would give up, yeah, is a big fear. But what I would, and this is what I I think this when I talk about the 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 danger of what I do, I am not sure how many more public black firings, um, attacks that kind of the African American community who exist in these spaces can take. Right, and so as someone who is increasing in public in publicity, I'm not actually worried about losing a sense of myself. I feel like that's there, but I feel like if they if they come for me, it'll be a confirmation of things. It'll it'll increase cynicism, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I really hope that like I really want to say that, and and it's not just happening to me; it's happening to other people. I was like. For every single African-American that is publicly mistreated, an entire generation of people don't lose their faith in God at all. Right. But they lose their faith in this opportunity that the church can actually be together. Come on. And so when like the I'm not worried about like not talking about it. 
I'm worried about. I'm not even worried about personally. Like my the, Macaulay's gonna eat regardless. We're not we're not worried about that. I'm not worried about my financial well being. I'm worrying. I'm worrying. I worry about the dishonor to the body of Christ that happens when the historical record. I'm not famous, and so like, ain't people gonna be reading the textbooks? But when people see what happened to Jamar, they just go, "Man, you see." And so I just don't want that to happen. And I'm hoping that the church, the the majority culture in the church, learns that lesson. And so that's when I talk about a hypothesis. I honestly, I'm hopeful, but I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I want to be able to say it's possible for us to be in these spaces. And that, if you were talking about like what failure would be, it's like, oh, man, they got me. Cynicism, nihilism takes over. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's cynicism about God, but I think it's cynicism about the church. And I do think that the church's witness in the United States is only possible if it's multi-ethnic. And this is not a conversation we can have here. We need to get off the podcast. But when I talk about multi-ethnic, I mean black, white, Asian, and Latino together talking about the nature of the gospel in a fractured culture. And Native and First Nations, yes, you know, it's funny because as soon as you, men, women, as soon as you begin to list things, you always leave people out. The diaspora, which is different than um, kind of native born, you know what I mean. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave somebody out. I love all y'all. The point of it is, <laughs> I don't think that there's another future for the church in America. There isn't. Yeah. Than this, absolutely. and so the hypothesis is real. So you 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 talked about, and and this is kind of floated around, and I'm sorry to come back to this towards the end of our conversation, but the witness itself in your own ministry and world kind of exist outside of white structures. I, this is a, this is a Christianity Today in a varsity podcast where we're in the middle of these predominant institutions. And there are African-Americans who historically have been a part of these institutions as attempts to reform. And so as someone who's not engaging in that kind of work, what would you say to someone who is, who's in the middle of these spaces? What would you say to them other than come over here and join me? What 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 what, what kind of questions and and suggestions would you have to people who are in these spaces? I think we do need to dwell on that question and and ask, you know, why why aren't you over here in a predominantly black institution? Not you personally, but as no, a you general can ask question, me, ask right? me. This this is me and you. We're talking. <laughs> do you, okay. you want, do you want I think to... I know your answer, but go ahead. Um well we we do have our own stuff, so I'll just say that I I'm not a purist because like we do have call and response and things that that we own, but why do I exist in these spaces? I exist in these spaces because for theological reasons, and you talked about how we all have to deal with our own trauma, and me personally, I believe that what the Bible says about what the church is has to be livable before we get to the eschaton. And the Bible talks about the church being the gathering of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And when it talks about the being the gathering of every tribe, tongue, and nation, it is not the assimilation of one into the other, but it is it is each of us together as a unique manifestation of God's glory. And so in so much as I'm my authentic black self in the context of a multi-ethnic setting, I am saying something about the nature of the gospel. And if that is rejected, and, you know, they, you know, 
then that is a judgment upon those who reject me, not a judgment upon like what I am doing. This is a bad analogy, but Richard Wimber, um, who started the vineyard, whatever you want to say about the vineyard, he said that there's a story that he read this stuff in Acts and said, I want to do the stuff that I see in the Bible. And ultimately, I want to do the stuff that we see in the Bible. And I want to be able to do those things as myself. And I don't want to be, I don't want to get to the point where I think that that is a hopeless pursuit. And so that's the reason why I remain. And I think there's a distinction, and this is at least, at least in my own, this is me working these ideas out. There's a distinction between doing ministry in the context of, of, of what they call the white gaze, where you're asking, well, how acceptable is this event to white culture? First is asking the question of, well, what does love require of me as a Christian? Love doesn't require me to, to accommodate every single whim of the majority culture. But it does require me to say, what can I do to make it possible to be heard while still being my authentic self? And as long as I can do those things, I will stay. But if I feel like that no longer is the case, then I'll leave. And I haven't come to the place where I feel like I'm actually hindered. Now, I'm not free, right? And I think that this is this is um, the other side. I'm not completely free. But I don't know if in the church we're ever completely free. That we're always hemmed in um, by kind of this bearing of one another's burden. So that's at least some of the ways I begin to think about it theologically. But I understand, like, people who say that that's not the work that I want to do. So does that begin to answer your question? That's good. That's good. Uh, I you can understand. Back on me. I think it's important to know, for listeners to know, that, um, number one, I'm still in those spaces to a certain degree, right? Like, I haven't burned bridges, Um that's why I can come on this show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the witness, whether our contributing writers or the people who follow us or show up at our live podcast events, it is quite multi-ethnic. And so I'm very, very grateful to that, Gr- grateful to God for that that phenomenon to, to, to exist. What is different is the terms on which it occurs. So when I was sort of more embedded in predominantly white institutions or outlets. I was there, you know, there was no sign on the door saying no coloreds allowed. It wasn't that. Um, It was, as I said before, as I brought my history, my culture, my experience to the table, more and more pushback, less and less space for that to happen. And so I just felt like what the church is, is to be able to bring your whole self to it. And we got plenty of sin to bear one another's burdens. But if I can't bring my whole black self to the table because of white anti-black racism and white supremacy, that is prohibitively limiting. And I'll say this to close. Um, what I have seen among black people who, black Christians who stay embedded in predominantly white Christian organizations is one of three things occurs. You get pushed out, you burn out, or you sell out. You get pushed out like I did, where, you know, you kept raising your voice and there's less and less space for you in those organizations. And whether you get fired or passed over for a promotion or just not invited to the meeting, whatever that looks like, you get pushed out. 
another eventuality is that you keep trying to raise these concerns. You keep trying to bring your whole self to the table and you burn out. Whether that means you actually lose faith in Christianity or the church or ministry, whatever that looks like, you get so tired that you, you, you're out. Or you sell out, which would be, you know, sort of an equivalent to the assimilationist thing of, I'm going to go along to get along. And maybe, you know, there's degrees of consciousness that you do that. Maybe you deeply, genuinely believe this stuff and, and you're not, you know, pushing for change. Or maybe at one point you did and you said, you know what, I just need a paycheck. And that's fine, right? Like, that's where you are. So my heart is heavy um, because I know how deeply this 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 spirit of racism is embedded in so many places. And I think it's going to be a lot of pain for people. I think we need to take seriously where the church is in 2020 compared to where the church is, where the church has been in the past. And what I want to say is the church is not where it should be, but it's not where it was. And that some of those Christians have paid a great price to bring about change in the church. What great price? Have Christians paid? Black Christians? White Christians. No, white Christians. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a, that's not a out one hour answer. I would <laughs> I, I would say I would say that most that a significant number of white Christians have not paid a price. But I, I guess in this this is the much this this is the after lemonade article that I wrote for you all. I'm not trying. To, I'm not. Oh, this, I feel like we. I mean, you got me on the podcast seat. That's okay though, because you, you used to have a podcast. There's a difference between saying I want to reform something and make it into what I think it should be. Versus, I want to go about my ministry as my authentic self and build a coalition with the people who want to participate in it. And so, I don't expect to burn out precisely because I'm not hopeful for the eschatological transformation of all things in the church now. What I am hopeful for is a coalition of the willing who will give me space to be myself as I engage in ministry. I mean, it's hard for me to be completely hopeful about white Christians when I have white Christians who are my friends. And who have paid some cost. So there's a distinction between what I would say, the church, capital C, and the people who I live my life with. And so when I read the history books and when I look at, you know, the Internet, that's one experience. But I got to talk about what happens on the ground in my day-to-day life with work as I write and I live and I, I witness. But that's okay, though, because you know what this is? These podcasts are a record in time. <laughs> and this is a hypothesis. Right. I, what what I am doing is a hypothesis. Right. And what you're doing. And I don't even think they're necessarily in conflict. They're hypothesis. Let's follow God in this way. And then we'll check back in five to 10 years and see what God has done with both. Hopefully he's blessed both. Oh, no doubt. Yes. Yes. And I should say, let's distinguish between the church and yes. a nonprofit Christian institution. Yes. You know, right. Like so. So God has not promised to preserve your college campus ministry or your publication or your conference or whatever it might be, that might get burned down. He has actually promised judgment (laughs) upon you for unfaithfulness, but you keep going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Actually, God has not promised to save any particular church. Exactly. Your particular congregation. Church. Yes. I mean, Uh he said the church, not your church. Or your denomination, right? You know, hey. So, <laughs> so, so I do make a distinction there where I have not at all moved away from 
what the Bible teaches about what the church should look like in terms of race and ethnicity. Um, and my fellowship among Christians of, of many races and ethnicities, I think, testifies to that. Um, but I am not at all convinced that, you know, these Christian institutions, many of which sprang up in the 20th century in the height of Jim Crow or segregation, I'm not at all convinced that those are healthy places for people of color or that they will change enough or quick enough for them to be healthy. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Historically, in the civil rights movement, um, and I'm not placing myself as king and putting you over in core or SNCC, but there is there is a sense in which there are people that there was some real tension between those two groups saying that like King wasn't radical enough. Do you think that that tension still exists within Christians who are today working for justice? And is there a way that we can learn a lesson from previous movements for justice where there was this sense? And, and, that, and the difference is those were one's distinctly Christian and one wasn't inherently Christian. But do you think that there's a similar tension between um, African-American Christian organizations today? And do you think we've learned any lessons from it? I think there's always that dynamic um, in activism generally, whether it's, 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 it's around race or environment or whatever it might be, of, you know, you aren't being radical enough, you're too moderate or whatever it might be. Um, I think what's interesting is that a King was quite radical. Um, yes, and that, 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 the interesting thing is the renormalization of King. That's an entirely different right. story. It's, like, it's, it's like listen to the videos. Like King's strong affirmation of blackness is like completely washed from history. Right, right, and and his activism. Right, yes. like how how many of us have been arrested for racial justice? How many of us? Uh, face credible death threats on a regular basis over the course of more than a decade and still do the work? And then how many of us will pay the ultimate price with our lives for, you know, pursuing this? And and the intellectual range. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so you're talking about from economic critiques to um, anti-war protest to racial justice. I mean, this this brother, he had like I, I myself, and this one of the one of the things you talked about the way in which reading about the civil rights movement and the history, even of someone like Frederick Douglass, is how they revealed to me, and this is kind of like the difference between the whitewashing of the king and real king, the actual language that he used was inflammatory. And there is no example of an African American leader who didn't speak plainly and who didn't tell the 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 hard truths about the interconnectedness of kind of American culture and its complicity towards the oppression of the people. And so yeah, that's king. But so what I what I what I noticed though, which is which has been part of my journey, is that King said what he said and did what he did from the black church. And I yes. wonder what it would have been like if he had even been in a multiracial church, as as they have often turned out to be in the U.S. context, or if he had been in a predominantly white church, you know, would he have been able to do that? Because in a sense, he he always had an audience. He always had a group that was on the same page with him, at least conceptually. They may he, not have gotten always out go the back streets. Home. Yes. And so, and so for many of us in this, you know, uh, late Gen X or, or millennial generation, because our environments have been so interracial, really predominantly white, whether that's 
um, you know, where you went to school, college, seminary, church, whatever, we're thrust into these environments because of desegregation. Now we can be there. But what but but what has happened is we don't have that home base like like many others used to have or still have in different contexts. That's my favorite color. So I grew up in an African-American Baptist church. He talked about how he didn't grow up in an all-black church, and he kind of discovered that later. But I grew up in black spaces, and we kind of developed this, I call this, this African-American church instinct of always combining a Judas orthodoxy with a concern for justice. And so when I came into evangelicalism, when I started interacting with evangelicals, that cognitive dissonance hit me really, really fast. He represents a stream of African-Americans who came into evangelicalism, largely in the reform tradition, who then exited. Not necessarily um, generous orthodoxy, but the institutions and the power structures of evangelicalism to create their own space. And that is, I would say, one of the most important things that happened over the last three to four years. And so some people who hear about African-Americans who came into the reform tradition of evangelicalism, then they left. That can be an upsetting narrative. And then they want to potentially attack or be upset with this narrative. But I'm just telling you what happened. And so what I would say, one takeaway would be to understand what happened in America since 2016. And really actually going back to um, this is not simply the election. This actually preceded the election in 2016, maybe even coming into the summer and the spring of that year. One thing people take away is what changed and what didn't when he left. Sometimes we think that leaving certain institutions means that the theological core of who we are changes. And I'm not the theology police, and I don't want to play theology police, but Jamar still loves Jesus. He still believes the central aspects of the Christian faith. And so one of the things that you saw him discuss is how we are so unfamiliar with categories beyond like one set of ideas that all come in a package. People assume that when you change one or two, that you change them all. And so what Jamar did was he says, you know, here's what I think that the scripture and the great tradition says about what the church should do about racism and oppression. And people said, well, if you say those things, then there are 15 things that must follow from that. And Jamar was like, no, 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 those things don't follow from that. But I think that what Jamar reveals is the fact that we have to learn not to package people. This is the last episode of the Disruptors podcast. I need to say a few things before we go. When they asked me to do the Disruptors podcast, I said, sure, but I didn't really have an idea. I think in the intro, was that I didn't have a plan. I just did it. That was actually true. I just showed up. I was given all the notes on how to do the podcast. And I said, I think I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to do it how I want to do it. I like that I was able to slide in outcast references in like five episodes periodically. And it happened a couple of times. The Disruptors podcast just turned into a black podcast. Despite the fact that we were sitting with CT and IVP, it was me and Jasmine or me and Jamar or me and Cho or me or Dominique. 
two African-American Christians got to talk about what it meant to follow Jesus in this context. And we weren't, we forgot that the mics were rolling. And so what it became is a conversation amongst friends about how to follow Jesus. And I just don't know how often that kind of authenticity was recorded on wax. And so many times I was, I would worry after we finished recording, it's like, can we play this? Can we keep this part? And the fact that we always kept that part was, I mean, and sometimes over my own protest, <laughs> the fact that we always kept that part is something I'm proud of. Um, I'm sure that at some point, at some job, I'm positive that I'm going to be running for something or, or trying to go for tenure. And they're going to pull up a clip of the Disruptors podcast and say, is this <laughs> is this super black part of the podcast, you Esau Macaulay? And I'm going to be like, guilty as charged. One of the things that made me realize that the Disruptors podcast had succeeded was when I started reading the comments. And I said, oh, the people are getting it. They felt like they were not represented. They feel out of place in really progressive circles because of the theological convictions. And they feel out of place in conservative circles because of the things they believe the Bible calls them to. And so the Disruptors podcast became like a way for people to listen in on a conversation that they had always been wanting to hear but had never heard before, or at least hadn't heard it in the way that we did it. They talk about the March in Washington where Martin Luther King, he said, I'm just telling the people in the United States to live up to what they put on paper. We want the church to live up to what it has on scripture, what the scriptures actually say about what the church is, what the church is called to do. Everybody who came on the podcast came because something within them compelled them to challenge the status quo. If you say, God has called me to do this work, but I'm not leaving, I'm staying, I'm doing this from within the house, that, that causes all kinds of problems in your life. It causes problems from the, from the house that you're actually trying to serve in. And they're saying, like, why are you messing with this thing that we have? And there's also a sense in which the people outside of the house are like, why are you still in the house? And so the Disruptors podcast became an exploration of how do I live faithfully as a Christian while also calling the church to change fundamentally the way that it does certain things. Justice, academics, and Christian life and praxis. Everybody who writes a book is in some sense arrogant. We have enough confidence to believe that what we say is important to somebody besides us and our friends and family. When I wrote um, Reading While Black, African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. What I was trying to do was bear witness to this tradition of black Bible reading in which the process of reading and interpreting these texts for themselves was the means by which black Christians found hope in the context of oppression. And so when you lived in a world in which Christianity presented to you as slaves be obedient to your masters and that what God called you to was simply acquiescence to the status quo, the act of reading the Bible itself and saying that, no, I see in these biblical texts, the testimony to what God thinks about me was revolutionary. At the heart of the black revolutionary tradition is this practice of Bible reading. But also went to say, well, how can we take this practice of black Bible reading and put it into conversation with the issues of the day? So in the book, we deal with issues of policing. We deal with issues of ethnic identity. We deal with issues of even black rage and anger. How do you deal with the emotion that comes from understanding what happened to black people in this country? 
sometimes people think that the only way to find hope in these texts is to kind of read against the grain of the text. But what I wanted to argue is the Bible as written, as God's word to us, speaks a relevant word to black and brown people in America today. I hope that it disrupts this narrative that the only path to fidelity is by abandoning the tradition of our ancestors. Sometimes to create a reappropriation is what's necessary too. Shout out to Richard Clark, who is on the podcast, who let me treat him bad the entire season. Um, shout out to Cray, not Lucray, but a white dude named Cray, who nonetheless like has a pretty good ear for rap. Shout out to Yans. People kept asking me on the internet for that song, Civil Rights. Some of CT's core audience probably doesn't want to Google all the lyrics for that. <laughs> we we played to you the clips that will not burn your ears, but shout out to Yans. Shout out to Jeff Gissing, who's probably never gotten a shout out in his life. <laughs> shout out to the Disruptor Slack channel. Shout out to IVP Studio that doesn't have any air conditioning. Shout out to all the guests. We may or may not be back for season two. I want my money back. I'm paying everybody back with the cold crush. We out. Not on this plan. Season two, we don't know. Like we already did it. 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 Like